Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger, along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. And uh, today we are going to be breaking down some of the news from the past week or so, week and a half. And we also, later in the episode, have Jesse Marshall of The Athletic joining us to talk about everything that has happened with the Pittsburgh Penguins this week. So uh, stay tuned for that at the end of this. It'll be about 20, 30 minutes probably. Um, but we have a, we have other stuff to talk about as well to start here. And uh Mainly a lot of Columbus Blue Jackets stuff, which uh, it feels like they're in the news more and more lately. But um, there's there was a lot that went on this week. And so we'll start with um, maybe the lightest thing, but uh, maybe the most surprising to me out of all three things, uh, honestly. Um, and that's Miku Koivu retiring. Uh, he decides to hang it up his first year in Columbus. He's only played seven of 14 games this year. And honestly, he hasn't looked very good. Um, it's it's one of those things where I think a lot of people looked and said, Oh, look how big of a, a shit show Columbus is that even Koivu's wanting to retire. But in his presser, he even cited him just not having it. And just about anything would back that up so far this year. He really has not been a strong player. And um, so, yeah, he, he hangs up the career after his first year away from Minnesota, he played uh, 1,035 games and 1,028 of those came with Minnesota plus 59 more in the playoffs. Uh, overall, pretty good career, you know, 711 points and probably a, a pretty underrated player just given the market he played in and the style of play that he uh, he played during his career. Yeah, anytime somebody's a defensive specialist on the Minnesota Wild, like that's the perfect kind of player for us stats nerd to be like, this guy was grossly underrated throughout his entire career. Yeah, it's, it's kind of nice to see him hang it up when he's like I'm done after 10 games or five games or whatever it was instead of like trying to just drag through a season where he just clearly doesn't have it because I, I always find it so sad when guys who were once like really really good just clearly don't have it anymore but they can't let go yeah exactly and instead of limping through the season and you know, playing third, 25 games out of 56 because you're getting healthy for the rest of them and just not producing anything while you're there. Um, you know, it's a shame, but it is what it is. But yeah, you know, in his peak, he was a 50-ish point guy. You know, he had a 71-point season, a 67-point season, a 62-point season, and then um, 56, 58, so 50-ish, and then a couple 47s and stuff like that as well. But he was really, really good when it came to possession and defensive play, you know. He, he fit that um, Minnesota Wild mold perfectly of um, not letting anything up defensively. And that's kind of what, uh, you know, he, he'll go down as. And it's unfortunate because some people probably won't remember it quite the same as, you know, maybe stats will, but as stats to start to take a bigger role here, I think that people will, he'll be one of the players that people look back on in a number of years and go, holy crap, like this guy was really good. Yeah, exactly. He's like the perfect kind of player that you can, once you start diving deeper into hockey, like beyond just offensive statistics and be like, wow, this guy was a really, really effective player, even though his point totals were all right too, like you said, but he's even more effective than those like 60 point years in Vlad. Yeah, exactly. And he hasn't had a lot of the 60 point years in a, in a couple of seasons now. Right. But he was still an effective player even four or five years or three or four years ago. And, you know, he, he kind of dropped off quickly, like 16, 17, he was having 58 point season, 17, 18, a 45 point season, 18, 19, a 29, then 21. And he had two points in seven games this year. So it's unfortunate to see, but it happens, you know, he's, he's uh, 37 years old. Like he, that's kind of what you expect from guys this age. And it's why when you see people like even like Zdeno Char or whatever, define the age curve so heavily, it's, it's why you need to take it with a grain of salt because it's like, yeah, not, 
not everyone does this, you know, like, and I'm sure there was probably a role for him to be a 12th forward on the team, gain some confidence back and get closer to 50% and, you know, expected goals or whatever. But um, it is, there is also something to, you know, not, uh, not having to do that when you were once considered one of the best players in your franchise's history. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, other than that with uh, Cody, you know, congrats on a great career, obviously, but uh, you know, I don't have much more to say on that, but let's get into the, um, why I think it was more just, you know, him not to not having it. And that's fair. Um, but everyone, well, not, not everyone, but a bunch of people right away kind of went all oh, like lol, uh, Tortorella. And because, um, the situation that happened this week, Patrick Laine has already been benched. Um, it took four games and he had three goals in those four games and he got benched. I, I, I'm not surprised by this. Some people were shocked. It took this. It's like, oh, like I was a little surprised. Maybe it was this early, but I also just wasn't that shocked in general, right? Like, it's this is what uh, Torts loves to do. You got to quote unquote show them how to play or whatever, you know. And uh, I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of those things where you go back and forth. I think we've discussed it on here too. It's like it, it's great that Tortorella knows how to get 120 percent out of a bunch of third liners, but if you're only going to get 60 percent out of your uh, first liners who want to leave at the end of the year, it probably doesn't actually end up being that good of a job, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like on the one hand, stereotypes based on like past information can be bad, but on the other, it really is the least surprising thing in the world that like Tortorella ended up having a problem with this really flashy, but defensive cancer style player within like five games. Yeah, and I guess the the reason was uh, Aaron Aaron Portsline came out and got the scoop. Uh, but apparently, Line said something to an assistant coach, and that's why he got benched for the game. And just I don't know, like I I don't want to, you know, we've never really been there, but I feel like that's a pretty pathetic reason to bench someone for a game and a half, you know, or like half the game. And it's just like it's one of those things. The, the thing that makes me the most mad is you know that Tortorella loves being the center of attention. He loves it. But he comes out after the game and goes, oh, I don't like benching guys, but I will. Like, you think this is what I want to do? It's like, yes, you've benched every player on this team. Cam Atkinson came out and said as much. He's like, oh, yeah, everyone's been there. It's like, if you didn't like benching guys, you'd find alternate ways around it not to bench guys for the entirety of a game, you know? Yeah, and, like, I don't say this lightly, but, like, you hear John Tortorella quotes almost, if not more often, than, like, you hear about Sheldon Keefe in the news. And that should tell you how aggressive like he may say that he doesn't like being the center of attention but wow does he seem to find himself in the middle of things all the goddamn time which makes me assume that yeah he actually definitely does love it yeah I mean yeah he just or he knows exactly how to play into it you know maybe he's not like what he strives for every single time but you can definitely tell he's not uh, afraid to go against the center of attention and I don't know like I get you got to coach your way or whatever but again at the same time like I just, the guy's got three goals in four games. And if he said something that was disrespectful, sit him down for a shift or two, a period, whatever. But, you know, the guy, the line he played, I think it was seven minutes, then four minutes, then zero minutes, you know? So it was pretty much he played 11 minutes and then got sad or whatever. And it's just like, that, that doesn't feel like the right way to approach especially people, you know, this, in this day and age, I mean, we're two people that are around Liney's age, you know, a couple of years younger than him, I believe. I think he's what, 23, uh, oh, he's 22. Yeah. So he, he's like, yeah, he's literally our age. It's like just yelling at guys and benching them is not a great way to get through to a ton of people our age these days. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, exactly. And like, it makes intuitive sense. Like if you make somebody hate going to work, they're probably not going to work as well. Like you can cry about like this generation being snowflakes or whatever, but like there really is something too. like, you should probably enjoy going to work if you're going to work your best. Yeah, exactly. And like, again, we're not behind the bench, you know, lots of guys love playing for Tortorella and, you know, a lot of his former players say, yeah, he's hard on people. But then when you, you do something right, he also gives you the credit or whatever too, which is, it's fair enough, but it's the same thing. It's just like, you think three days or four days in, you wouldn't want to, uh, you know, be benching your star player that you just got in a trade for another guy who was a star player and wanted out because you were, you know, half the, or half the rumors were that you were way too hard on him. So I don't know, like, it's just one of those things where, uh, I'm not shocked that it happened at all. I thought maybe it would be a little bit later. Like I, I was a little surprised it was just this immediate, but at the same time, like if you would have told me when the trade happened, yeah, Lightning's going to have three goals in four games and then get benched in the fourth game. It's like, yeah, okay. You know what? I, and that doesn't even shock me, you know, like seems like a torch thing to do. Yep. It's the least surprising thing in the world that this turned out to be a dramatic event. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. Like, it's one of those things where whatever, like, what can you do, right? But uh, I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to monitor going forward if, you know, see a line of rebounds and whatever. But um, I, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't know what to say, really. Like, it's it just, uh, it's one of those things where I, if line a leaves at the end of this year or say next year or whatever, like if he leaves the first chance he can get pretty much right. Whether that be our through RFA this year or UFA, whenever he becomes in a couple of years when he becomes it, you really got to sit down and look and start going, is it worth to have Tortorella, uh, the coach of our team, you know? Yeah. It certainly begs the question because obviously head coaches are very influential figures in the organization, but like, you don't get that many cracks at Patrick Line A level players. No, you really don't. And I mean, you you get enough cracks at Pierre Luc Dubois level players, but even that, just pissing them off. Same with you know, like uh, Panarin wanted to leave, Bobrovsky left, Duchesne left, and like I get you know, it's not that there's different reasons for all of it, but it's also at the same time like all when you have how many guys does it need to become for it to be a trend, right? Like where it's five or six people in the span of two years that are like, yeah, we kind of want out of here. We don't really actually like enjoy playing here. Um, you know, I don't know what else to say. Like at some point you have to look internally and go, okay, yes, I, I get that Columbus isn't a very good destination anyways, but having a, a pain in the ass coach for star players doesn't seem like the way to improve that. Yeah, exactly. When you already have difficulties attracting people because it's not exactly the flashiest market in the world, you probably don't need to compound those errors. Yes, exactly. So um, the third thing with Columbus was just the one of the last absolute most ridiculous things I've ever seen. So I'm going to try and explain it as best as I can. I wasn't watching the game and I, I, I tried to piece it together. But basically, uh, the Islanders were playing, I believe it was the Hurricane, or sorry, the Islanders, the, the Blue Jackets, I believe, were playing uh, the Hurricanes, maybe? Let me check. It was on Saturday and um, goal gets scored. Yeah, it was it was Carolina Hurricanes on, on Sunday, sorry, I believe, because uh, it was before the Super Bowl. And uh, a goal gets scored and... Um, the, the, the Blue Jackets challenge for offside. So uh, they're going to their offside review. And I guess in the, so what happens is there's the, the officials on the ice looking at it, right? And they're connected with a war room in Toronto. But then there's a guy in the middle that's in the rink, just 
connecting the two of them together to make sure nothing happens. And I guess this guy was brand new and like an intern. And I don't know if you didn't realize his mic was off, but he just gave his personal opinion and said, oh yeah, that's a good goal. So the ref said, all right, thanks. They hear that, put their headset down, skate away and call a good goal, right? <laughs> so then uh, because Columbus challenged and they got it wrong, they now have a two minute delay of game penalty. Um, so they're uh, like, uh, by all accounts, hockey ops just screaming to try and get them on the phone. And normally it wouldn't have been too big of an issue because the guys using a headset would have their headsets on, right? And they would just honk it down or like buzz it down and then get the refs to come back before play started. However, because of COVID protocols, you need to wipe the headset down between each use. So the guys, when they get off, all the headsets go in, they wipe them all down with Lysol and everything. And while they're doing that, that's the reason they can't hear the call come back. So they call a good goal, drop puck, start playing again. There's about 50 seconds left in the period. Well, in the intermission, they then call the refs back and say, we screwed up here. It was clearly obviously, it was obviously offside, um, but we can't take the goal back. So take the penalty off the board which is just pure insanity to me. So they, they take the, the penalty off the board, which there is no precedent of being able to do it, but they don't take the goal off the board because the puck has already dropped. And this is just insane. I, I'm surprised Tortorella didn't blow a gasket over this one. That would have been fair enough, but it, it's just, I don't care. You, I want your thoughts on it because I have just so many thoughts that of like, how can this happen? And also what they probably should have been doing. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, like I wouldn't be that shocked if this happened in, like, a minor midget AE game or something. <laughs> the refs are, like, just by the seat of their pants, let's just change this because we can't do this. But it's it kind of, like, amazing that something like this happened at the NHL level. Yeah, like, it's... And the fact that they dealt... Okay, so the, my biggest issue is it, it happens. Mistakes happen, right? Like... It was a, it was an intern or whatever that screwed up new on the job and yeah, whatever. Like it's silly, but at the same time, like you're bound to see it once in a while. What the stupidest part to me is them taking the penalty off the board and not the goal. In my opinion, neither should happen. It's like, you know, the rules in football, right? If there's a penalty, you can challenge up until that play is snapped. As soon as the ball is snapped, you're no longer allowed challenging the previous play because it's already gone on. That is exactly what should have happened in this where the goal stands, but the penalty also stands. Yes, Columbus gets screwed by it, but what do you want them to do? Like, it, it, it's got to stand. They screwed up. They screwed up, you know? And I, I was listening to Puck Soup and Sean uh, uh, McIndoe. McIndoe, is that his last name? Down goes Brown. His, uh, he, he was saying, you know, what they really should have done is just gone to the rest of the intermission, said the first time a Carolina Hurricane player breathes on a Columbus Blue Jackets player, call a penalty, even it up, because that's what happens in the NHL anyways. Why would you not just do that now? But Instead, they decide to take the penalty off the board, but not the goal. And it's like, you can't just half measure it like that. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, that was, like I said, it's amazing that this happened at the NHL level. Yeah, like it's just, and then, you know, they come out and they say, well, the reason we can't take the goal off the board is because there was no precedent for uh, taking the goal off the board. It's like, well, there was none for taking them. There's no rule in the rule book that says you can take a penalty off the board for just no reason at all either, right? Like th there's literally just no rule about that. So there's no precedent for any of it. You know, like if you're going to change it for the, the penalty, how can you not change it for the goal? And I get not wanting to change the goal, but then you can't change either of them. It's got to be both or neither. Th that's simple. Yeah. Like pick one or the other. There's no, you can't be pulling like half measures here. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's just a, 
Mickey Mouse League sometimes, and it's just it's not shocking, right? Like that that this happened in the uh, um, NHL, of course. But I I don't know. Like it's just one of those things where it's like how how do you let this happen to the point where it's like okay, one mistake happens, sure, another mistake happens, okay, and then you go, oh yeah, but also you know, let's just compound it a third time and make an absolute, another mistake that just absolutely did not need to happen. Yeah. For no apparent reason. Yeah. And then I love how they, you know, their damage control for all of this is, Oh, you know who the league will love to hear for the voice of this reason, Colin Campbell as, as if, you know, you couldn't have chose any worse other than maybe Gary Bettman to come out and try and explain why you did what you did here. But uh, I don't know that that was one thing I wanted to bring up just an absolute mess over the weekend. Um, and it, it was just a, uh, very fitting considering everything else that has happened with the uh, um, Columbus Blue Jackets this week, you know? Yeah, it's almost magical that it just keeps compact. Like, I don't know if there's ever been a news cycle so heavily centered around the Columbus Blue Jackets. No, I don't think so. Not around Columbus. Uh, I mean, I would be shocked anyways. Yeah, but, me too. Um, other than that, we don't have a ton of news, but I did want to uh, – break down some other small things. Um, main, one of the things I wanted to touch on was uh, the Col- or not the Columbus, but the Toronto Maple Leafs and their start in the North division. They really have a, a stranglehold on this North division as recording. Uh, this should be out Saturday at some point, recording Friday afternoon and then evening. Um, everyone uh, has played at least 14 games other than Calgary. Toronto is sitting at top of the standings with 23 points right now. The next closest team is Montreal with 18 and the same amount of games played. Uh, you know, Toronto and Montreal play on Saturday. And if Toronto wins that, they go seven points ahead of the next place team with a game in hand on the Oilers still and the same amount of games played against Montreal. They really have the capability to just dominate this division. Like, you know, some projection projection models kind of had them doing. Yeah. And it's one of those things too, where like eight point leads were insurmountable at the best of times during an 82 game season. Like if they can get like an eight or a 10 point lead 15 games in, like with all the loser points in the NHL, that's just going to be so hard for any team to come back from unless Toronto just completely like implodes. But yeah, like, you would need Toronto to probably play 500 hockey and Edmonton or Montreal to go on an absolute heater for it to be close at the top of the division if they have a, a 10-point lead at the 17-game mark of the season or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Because like like we said, like it's people talk about how like early early points matter so much that by I think it's like Thanksgiving, you can guess like 75% of the playoff teams based on who's in right now. And like that's just gonna be even more extreme this year. Oh, absolutely. It always is in shortened seasons. But the one thing I really wanted to bring up was um, your opinion on how they're winning, because uh, they aren't playing their best hockey we've ever seen them play. I, you've had a couple pieces about are the Toronto Maple Leafs actually inconsistent? You took a look and it was like, yes, they actually are. They get blown out a lot or just, you know, destroyed more often than the other team. And, um, you know, this year they're finding ways to stay in games and, you um, I'm wondering a lot of the narrative of them right now. So if anyone's wondering, they're ranked 16th in Corsi four percentage and uh, they're below 50% in expected goals, which sits just tad, but it sits up at 19th. Uh, if you score just that, because, you know, teams like Ottawa are ahead of them in Corsi four percentage, which just isn't right because Ottawa trails 90% of their games. 
But, uh, you know, score, score adjusted Toronto's up to 11th in Corsi four percentage and expected goals up to 51%, which puts them at 15th. So still pretty average metrics, all things considered. Um, is this a good thing that you're, we're seeing out of the Toronto Maple Leafs or are they lucky? You know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say they're eight, one and one in their last 10. So there's obviously an extent to luck. No team does that over and over again, but are you encouraged by what you're seeing with the Toronto Maple Leafs right now, or would you rather see them play better? Because a big part of the narrative is they're finding ways to win with their quote unquote B game. When the skill's not going, they're finding ways to quote grind games out. And I buy into that a little bit, but I, I want to know how much you buy into it and whether it's something to be keep an eye on or, you know, are they just extremely lucky? Yeah, I'm like, so obviously anytime you go eight and one, like you said, there's an extreme amount of luck there. And like, so their RAPM numbers look a lot better than their raw numbers, but like with the collinearity of like the divisions only having seven teams and you're not playing outside your divisions, that's so hard to put stock into. So I'm healthily skeptical. Like I, they haven't looked bad, but they haven't looked really good either outside of like Matthews is just killing it. And Justin hole has been like this huge bright spot, but like they, there isn't like, it. it's not a super rosy picture to me in spite of their record. Yeah. And I think, again, I think you could even look at that two ways too, where you can take a positive out of that and say, this team's 11, two and one top of the East or top of the North division by a mile. And you can argue that two or three of their best players haven't even looked as good as they probably should. Right. Now you can also say that they're 11, two and one, and this is due to come back because they're good players, unless they step up, you know, like they need to step up for them to continue success. And I think it's a little bit of both where it's like, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like we're two or three games away or two or three bounces in the games away where the Leafs are actually nine, four and two instead of 11, or sorry, eight, four and two and tied with the Canadians in points for their record. And it's, it's just, it's instead of the narrative being they're finding ways to win with their B game, they look a lot more gritty this year. It's, this is the same old team that should be dominating everyone, but they're not. And I I don't know. I I feel like that is just kind of an error on, you know, mainstream media anyways. Like it's, it's just, it's kind of really dictatorial, but like if you win close games by one, a bunch of close games by one or two goals, you're suddenly dubbed this good defensive team who knows how to shut it down and play a grinding like game. Whereas if those bounces just don't go your way, you're this young inexperienced team that just can't seem to get it done. Yeah. And it's, it's such like hindsight bias that basically if you're lucky, you're good. And if you're unlucky, you're bad. It's what it comes down to in a lot of media. Yes, absolutely. And so I don't know, I'm interested to see where Toronto goes. Like I do buy into the fact that like there have been some nights, cause I think your data would show the same where, if Toronto's skill wasn't going, they would just get destroyed some nights, you know, like it, it's not like it would be a three, two game. They lose. It's like a six or seven, one game, but that, that's not what people point to. If people are pointing to that, you know, I, I would understand it more. It's not like Toronto's getting absolutely blown out when they lose these nights either anymore either. Right. It's like they lost to uh, Ottawa, I think. And was it Edmonton maybe once as well, but it's it, like, they were all relatively close games from what I remember. So I I do buy into that a little bit that it's like, yes, if, you know, Matthews isn't scoring two and Marner slash uh, uh, Tavares aren't potting some as well. It's not like they're absolutely dead in the water losing six, two or whatever, but still at some point it's like, you can't just say that they're this great team that grinds the game out because they've just won, 
nine one goal games or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. Like that's just not going to sustain itself over a long period of time. Now, like you said, so the flip side to everything I wrote about them being super inconsistent and getting blown out way more often than any other team of their quality does is they dominated teams even more often than like the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Vegas Golden Knights did. But like they're not really doing that all that much either. And like except for like Canucks games. But so like there's there's a give and a get here going on here. And yeah, I think oh, giving up the dominating games is not worth like subtracting from the blowout losses. Yeah. I mean, I, and it's fair. Like their goal differential, I was, because it feels like they've won a ton of one goal games and they kind of have, but their goal differential is still second best in the league. And, and I get that's not the be, end all be all or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes you see a team that's in the playoffs with like a negative goal differential or whatever. And it's just like, okay, well, that's, clearly not sustainable but at the same time i also think that you know this division's a little a little more flawed because you look at the goal differential five of the seven teams have positive goal differential and then you have ottawa sitting at a league worst minus 31 and vancouver at a minus 15 the next worst in the league by the way is detroit at minus 20 so you have ottawa that's 11 goals worse than any team but i mean it's not even like toronto's played ottawa all that much either so I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, it's one thing I want to bring up because especially last night, I think, or the other night, the narrative coming out of that Montreal game was insane to me. I thought they got dominated by Montreal for the first, what, 40 minutes or so. And then they really kind of woke up in the, in the last uh, period and potted three on price. But the, the report, like the, the narrative coming out of that, out of that in Toronto media was, oh, this is amazing because they finally found a way to just kind of weather the storm. They clearly weren't all that, all that worried about it. And um, it was actually good the way they played through the second period. It's like, I, I don't think, you know, only having 30% of the shots and the or shot attempts in the second period is actually a good thing to be having. Yeah, it's definitely not. And like, so there is something with Toronto where especially relative to the Canadian division teams, like if Toronto is the 10th best play driving team in the league, they can still easily be like the fifth cup favorites or whatever because they have so much shooting talent, but like when you're just getting killed, like you can't say, well, this is actually fine because we're still finding ways to win. Like in the long run, even with all the shooting talent, you're still going to get, you're still going to lose if you're getting filled in. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so that's why like, I wouldn't be too worried about their, because you know, like score adjusted, which I think you kind of need to do at this point. They are, they are like, uh, you know, what I say was 15th or whatever in expected goals. Um, it's not like they're a bad team. Yeah, they're 15th and I think they're 11th in Corsi 4. So, you know, that shooting talent probably takes you, they have so much of it too, where if they finish, say, 8th and 12th in the league or whatever in those two metrics, it's like, well, that shooting talent probably bumps you up a couple spots as well, because especially when expected goals at the top of the league, it's Carolina, Montreal, Boston, Minnesota, Colorado, Florida, Calgary, Vegas, Tampa, Arizona. So of those teams, Montreal's looked better this year, but I'm still not sold that they have just boatloads of shooting talent on their team, right? Minnesota, we know doesn't have boatloads of shooting talent on their team other than Kaprasov and uh, Fiala, maybe. Uh, Florida has some guys, but it's not like they're just like, um, oh, what's his, Cardi Verhage is just absolutely going off this year. I don't expect him to just keep shooting at insane clip or anything like that. And then the Coyotes don't either. So you look at the top teams and you can argue Carolina lacks it a little bit too, although they, they do have guys like Sebechnikov, obviously, but you could argue that probably in the top 10, four teams really don't have shooting talent. And then Toronto's got better shooting talent than probably 
three of the other teams easily as well. So it's not something to be super worried about, but yeah, it's, it's weird to me how the narrative changes when you, you know, the expected goals and Corsi four in a period are 70 to 30 in terms of percentage and people go, no, that was actually a good gritty defensive period. It's like, well, it really wasn't, you know? Yeah. And I will say part of the reason why I'm not like super concerned is because I like, by the end of the season, John Tavares, William Nylander, and Mitch Marner will have way better numbers at five on five than they do now. And I think that'll be like the rising tide that lifts the team up into beating that more dominant play driving team that they should be. But like descriptively, it is a little concerning. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, if, if it doesn't continue, but um, you know, I think I would look at it if I'm a Leafs fan as a little more positive where you're winning these games despite your guys not dominating at five on five. And we have a large history showing that they do control play at five on five. So you would expect that to bounce back. But um, yeah, that, that was the other thing I want to bring up. We're hitting about the 30 minute mark now. So uh, we will flip it over to our interview with uh, Jesse Marshall. Thank you everyone for listening. Joining us now, he's covering all things Pittsburgh Penguins for the athletic uh, Pittsburgh. It's Jesse Marshall. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. How's it going, man? Hanging in there, guys. Appreciate it. It's been a pretty boring week. Nothing's been going on. No, there's there's been uh, nothing to talk about at all. You know, we were like, oh, what are we even going to discuss if we have you on this week? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I, I would assume you probably would by now, but uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins have been uh, the center of the uh, media this week. You know, them in the Columbus Blue Jackets, obviously, but uh, Pittsburgh made a, a, a splash or a couple hirings here this week with uh, Hextall and uh, Burke as well. And, um, you know, this came... I, I feel like uh, we knew they were probably going to hire someone eventually, correct? But I was a little, not surprised at the timing, but it, it developed pretty quick over the week. And, you know, Rutherford had, uh, you know, stepped out a, what, a month ago or so now. And, and then in comes Hextall and Burke this week. Uh, can you explain just you know, how quickly things seem to develop in the in the couple days there? I actually think that it was an ongoing, I think it was actually more slow moving than people probably realized. Um, I mean, you mentioned the part about, you know, uh, what, you know, it was almost what a month really since they filled the position. And I mean, I guess, you know, in that sense, like Patrick Alvin, who was the interim uh, general manager, you know, had never had the job before, but is an extremely competent individual that everybody had a lot of faith in to steer the ship, you know, in the interim. Um, But I think actually, you know, the process of getting people in and doing the interviews and, uh, you know, just some of the, I guess, finer points actually probably I think drug out a little bit longer than some people thought. Um, and once we kind of had found out that the process was underway, it certainly seemed like they took their time with it. Um, and then we kind of found out after the fact, you know, that um, Brian Burke was kind of in the background, I guess you could say as a, as an advisor to the process the entire time, uh, which wasn't something I think we were initially aware of. Uh, it makes sense because the Penguins had tried to bring in, Dale Talon last year to do, you know, basically the same job and, and build out, you know, on a hockey operations department. So, um, yeah, I think when the dust settled, you had Ron Hextall in the mix. Uh, Kevin Weeks got more than one interview. I think Mike Fuda got more than one interview. Uh, but at uh, the end of the day, I think Hextall was kind of the guy they had their eye on from more or less the onset of the process. They successfully got him in. Um, I think they feel really confident about it. And, to boot, they bring, you know, Burke in with him to, uh, you know, kind of focus on the, the operation side and help them to establish, I guess you could say, a foothold in that area. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, Hextall maybe, at least to me, wasn't quite as surprising. Uh, Burke was a little bit just um, not out of left field, but kind of just because of where he was working. You know, he was with Sportsnet. He was doing daily hits with them on TV, and, and it, it kind of felt like they were almost grooming him to to step up into that big uh, next role, you know. And um, it, he came out. I, I know he was on radio here in Toronto, 1050, uh, TSN 1050, and he was saying, that just as you said, he was helping through the uh, – the hiring process where he was, when people asked if they, you know, he had information on candidates, he would give his opinion and everything. And that's kind of how the, the position offer developed. But uh, I, I was personally a little surprised when uh, Ryan Burke was named uh, president of hockey operations. I'm wondering what you see. Do you think this will be a good fit with these two? Like, would you rather seen someone else or how do you think these two are going to work together? And do you think this is the ideal situation for the Penguins? Well, I think we have to start with a sort of an assessment of the environment, guys, right? So the Penguins don't really have a hockey operations department, right? That That's like people will hear this and they'll say like, what? Not the Penguins, but really, that's true. Like, you know, David Morehouse, the president of the team, um, has kind of de facto been involved with that. Um, you know, much, I think, to the uh, chagrin of penguins fans uh i think that you know there are established roles in the front office right like patrick alvin was the director of scouting and sam uh ventura was the director of analytics and had a had a role in hockey operations as well but you know w was there like was there silos like were, did people understand where they fit in the greater good you know i think that there were some things that were perhaps left behind from Jason Carmanos, when he left, that didn't get picked up by other people, which is like a, you know, that, that I think noting the environment, right? Noting that situation, it makes sense as to why uh, Brian Burke got brought in. Because if you're really looking for somebody to build that and you, you need somebody that could put together a competent, you know, fully functional hockey operations department, there's probably not anybody better in the business based on his connections his functional understanding of how a franchise works, his success with building them in the past. Um, you know, th that's probably, and, and then, you know, I think they probably would have felt the same way about Dale Talon, right? Like his ability to build out a front offices. He can do it. He's well, it's well documented. And I think they felt that they needed it. I don't think that their paths are going to cross all that much, to be honest with you. Um, being as though, you know, as noting that Burke was an advisor, to this process, I, I can't envision a scenario where, you know, he's toe stepping on the guy that he hired. Right. I think his work will be more administrative and, and getting the front of the house in order. Yeah. I think that's definitely fair. And I think, um, you know, in my, in my opinion here, it's good that Burke is the president of hockey ops, because as you said, you know, he can do that job really well. He's shown it. I would be a little more um, intrigued, but also maybe, I don't know if worried's the right word, but curious to see what kind of direction they go in if he was the GM, just, you know, some of his quotes and everything. But I still think that applies too. But I, I also like the Hextall hiring in terms of a GM. You know, he gets a lot of credit right now for that, the team that is in Philly because he laid the foundation of it. But um, what I'm curious about is, you know, in Philly, he took his time. He's known to be a pretty patient GM. Uh, he didn't want to bring up uh, Carter Hart or anything like that right away if he didn't have to. 
with this Penguins team, it's a little different because we've already, obviously, one of the most quoted tweets this week was Brian Burke uh, a month ago or so um, discussing about, you know, or I think it was a month or two ago on Sportsnet saying how if he was Jim Rutherford, he would, he thinks they have to kind of rebuild it and tear it down. But, you know, now he's kind of in a win mode now with a win now mode with the team. Uh, I want to get your opinion on what you think Hextall can do with this team now. And do you think it's going to be a bit of a slow build and they're going to, try and run with this core for a year or two, or do you think we're going to see some big changes in the near future for the Pittsburgh Penguins? I think the initial inclination is to attempt to build this current iteration of the team in a way that can win the Stanley cup. Now Uh, I would assume that probably is also true in the short term next year. Um, You know, I don't know what it means for the coaching staff. I don't know, you know, if, if they're a part of a, of a, of a plan that even extends in the short term. And I think we'll have to, you know, we'll have to take a look. They'll probably take a look at that as we go. Uh, but it seems like they, they feel like there's still uh competability in this window. Uh, it's still open and that there's still things that can be done to, um, you know, kind of get back to the, to the, you know, ultimate goal. So I think the challenge for, for him, for Ron Hextall is to find a way to do that without sacrificing uh, any of your three good prospects. And there really are just kind of three, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a little dry. Honest, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's not like you're, you're not swimming in prospects over here. This is in Ottawa. Um, and then on the top of that, save the picks too. Because the cupboard's bare. We already mentioned that. They don't have a first round pick this year because of the Jason Zucker trade. Um, you know, Ron Hextall is a guy who's made good with late rounders. You know, he's maximized the value, so to speak, I guess, out of all of the, the picks that he's had. So that's that's encouraging, right? I don't know that Ron Ron Hextall has the, the knack for it that Mike Fuda does, um, but perhaps the Penguins valued uh, Hextall's sort of like overarching GM experience over Fuda's, right? That, that would be understandable. So... Either way, I mean, I think the Penguins have a guy who's proven that uh, from a scouting perspective, you know, they can go out and get talent uh, and not just the ones that, that the obvious talent that falls into their lap either. You know, we're talking, you know, late round talent that can, you know, give you good hockey on a cheap contract for uh, um, a decent period of time. Yeah, and that's kind of what they need right now too, right? Uh, Chase is, I, I should let Chase chip in here too. I don't know if, if there's any thoughts here from you, Chase. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but what does a Penguins team that can win right now look like to you? Like, do you think it's that much different than this current team? So Chase, that's a good question, and no, uh, because right now most of the issues that they're running into are entirely self-inflicted. I would say, you know, functionally speaking, from like your four your four lines and your six D, you know, your six D, you're okay. Goaltending is terrifying right now, because yeah. um, Tristan Jari just is not anywhere near the all star version of himself from less than a year ago, right? Um, that's bad. Uh, Casey DeSmith, you know, last night had a hell. It was a real battle, um, stuck in it all night long in some difficult circumstances at times. Got two points out of it, but it's you know. No disrespect, it's Casey DeSmith, right? You you didn't expect him to have to step in and play 45 games this year, right? So that I th- I think that that that's probably where they look first. And they have you know they have Emil Army 
in the American Hockey League who's just not ready yet, in my opinion. You know, I'm mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe everybody's wrong, and you know, it gives you a little something that's level. I just think that he's a little too raw. So it's a it's a position that would have to be addressed externally. And unfortunately, like look right now at Minnesota, right? Like they have no goaltenders. San Jose like just lost Devin Dubik, Dubnik. Like there are it just seems like every team in the league almost has got some manner of goaltending problem right now. Um whether it's their backup, their starter or both. So this is not something that's like easily fixed. You know, you can't, it's you're not just like walking down to the Sunoco and picking up like a candy bar, you know. Um, so I think that's it. But to your point though, like defensively, like there have been surprising performances all year long from Cody CC or Chad Ruedel or you know uh, Marcus Pedersen and Yuso Ricola before they got hurt. I think we're both turning in good performances. Now, like Dumoulin, Latang, Marino, these are guys that have kind of like been playing with their heads screwed on, you know, the wrong way almost sometimes. Um, your top six is dominated long stretches of hockey and really hadn't earned the goals from it. Uh, that's a luck thing, right? That's shooting percentage. Not a whole lot really that you could do about that. Um, maybe you want more depth and maybe a little more scoring touch in the bottom six. I get that, but. I think the point is, is that it's really not that far off. Uh, this is, I feel anyway, more directional in the sense that it's, uh, you know, it's it's 50 good minutes ruined by 10 of just really bad hockey. Uh, and that solving that is probably the, the difference between where they are now uh, and where they want to be. I think that's good. Yeah, I mean, that's really fair. And I think if people aren't sure about how poor the goaltending has been, if you want to, even their Rossi percentage, I think is the worst in the league among uh, duos. If not, it's second worst. Uh, but their goal saved above average and above expected is uh, atrocious this year. The bottom five goalies or four goalies right now in the league are uh, Marcus Hogberg, Martin Jones, Tristan Jari, Matt Murray, and then uh, Casey DeSmith is down at uh, the 12th worst out of. Um, 50 or 62 goalies sorry that have played in uh, at least 50 minutes this year so it's been you know it, it doesn't really matter to an extent how well you play if you literally or you physically cannot get a save right um and that'll be it, it's so interesting to see how teams try and get past that because you know you mentioned how many teams are dealing with goaltending struggles just look at some of the guys that have been claimed off waivers this year like hmm. it's been it's been people that i think like I barely know and I try and stay as informed around the hockey, like as, as you possibly can. Right. And it's just random names that are like, right. oh, I can't man, even like, remember who it is now up in Chicago. Yeah. It, it's like a 23 year old. Is it? Yeah. Uh, I can't even not, remember his last name. It begins with it's not Lekkonen, but it's something like <laughs> something that. Like that. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, and then, and yeah, exactly. Like that's who ended up taking the starting job right now because he kind of had to, and he's run with it. It's Kevin Lankinen. Sorry, not Lankinen, but um, yeah, the 25 year old who, who's trying to run with the starting job. He's doing a great job of it, but like, that's just kind of the scenario we're in. Right. And you saw, uh, sorry about that. If you guys heard that um, you see the Edmonton Oilers, like they were claiming just guys was like, who is this guy off of waivers? Um, couple months you know, about a month ago when the season started so that that's definitely i think going to be the biggest area of need and uh, you know maybe you hope it regresses a little bit to the point where it's just if you know obviously you can't win with league worst goaltending but hopefully you can get closer to average goaltending and balance things out because 
Then, as you said, I, I think that they have, obviously, when you have Crosby and Malcolm, Malkin up front, Latang on your blue line, uh, you have the pieces in place to kind of go for it. But mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, what are those little moves that you can make to improve your team? One of the things that you said is really important in all this, and it's, you know, a safe, you know, percentage versus expectation. Because um, I think, like, the common refrain from people, um, you know, when trying to evaluate the situation as well, first of all, it's very volatile, you know, the, the – uh, the team's not great defensively. They, they they have these meltdowns, and that's all true, right? But we have, you know, methodology for, you know, evaluating players like in the midst of that, right? And and accounting for those circumstances. So if you take them into consideration, even taking them into consideration, I mean, the level is still, you know, as you mentioned, behind. I think probably by like over a goal and a half now, maybe close to two goals. Um, you know, two goals is, you know, you're starting to get creeping towards it's adding up the points in the standing so um yeah it's it's dire and there's you know they addressed it in a major when you, you know it's i think organizationally dire in in the sense that going into this year i mean they made you know they have limited capital to spend at the draft and invested you know half of what they had in goaltending so uh, it's just not just like a, a parent problem um this is something that extends well beyond that into you know, into the farm system as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it's a problem that kind of extends into next year too, because already their projected cap hit for this next season is $79 million, which is a pure 3 million less than this year. And, you know, they don't have to re-sign too many people, you know, Cody CC's a UFA. Uh, then you have your only RFAs are Zach Aston Reese, Teddy Bluger, who I would assume they'll get a little bit of a raise, but it shouldn't be, you know, unbearable or anything like that. But it, more importantly, it's just more where, where do you find the money to try and upgrade this team in a meaningful way? Because anyone who's making big money on this team, you either don't really want to trade away if you're trying to compete right now or likely can't because uh, no offense to Michael Matheson, but I just I fail to see another team taking that contract on willingly right now. I, you're right, but like I said that already, though, you know, <laughs> like I already said it once. So I feel like I feel like anything is possible, um, given the fact that like you know I think about like the daily for Scuderi trade, and you know you don't rule it out. Um, it's going to be difficult, but it, it could be done. I don't even know if that's necessarily the place that they go, um, you know, to look for it. You know, Jason Zucker's only signed through 22-23. You know, if, if he continued to struggle this year. Because uh, it's like at the point now where I would say, and this is somebody, by the way, I predicted the score at a 40-goal pace. So I'm like looking real bad right now. <laughs> <in this. laughs> but he hasn't even been noticeable, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, he's he alone is about 8%, right? I think about somewhere of your cap space at forward. So if they could move that, and that's a very movable player. If you move that, you know, that's a possibility. Um, the big one, I guess, probably is Chris Letang, right? Um, yeah. He's got a no movement, no trade. Um, it, it's tougher. You know, I, I don't know you pull it off. Uh, but, you know, it's, that's a lot of, you know, 7.25 is a lot of money. Um and and again, like you know, not everything can be a, fairy tales are how you end up, uh, you know, in 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 long term cap hell, in my opinion. 
um, you know, everything would be great if it was a fairy tale and everybody could retire together and sunshine and rainbows. You can all lift a banner together and sing Kumbaya. Uh, that's not the way the business works though, right? So loyalty, uh, and Ron Textall would probably tell you this, <laughs> you know, given his experience with Dave Hackstall, uh, loyalty uh, is something that sometimes, you know, will get you in trouble. So I think that Ron Hextall being a fresh face maybe is a good thing here because he doesn't have that sort of ethereal connection to these players via winning a championship, you know. Um, not that Jim Rutherford was like all that hesitant to move a championship player out. Uh, I seemed, actually, time seemed like he really enjoyed it. Um, but you get the idea. I mean, there's no sentimentality going on here, uh, which plays in their favor when they have shrewd decisions have to be made. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah, you, you do make a great point that I, I should say never, or I, I fail to see a team moving uh, a player because there's been a lot of players move where it's like, why is a team willingly taking on this guy? But um, yeah, Chase, what, do you, is there anywhere that you would want to see them make an upgrade or is there any move that you would be considering making? Um, I don't know specifically, but I do want to know your thoughts on Latang as a guy that I don't know if they're married to Latang or not. That's something I guess you would be able to speak to better than me. And then is there a world, like I know he's been bad this year, but is there a world where they can actually move on from Latang and get better in the short term? Um, yes. To all, yeah, so well, let me address these individually because yes doesn't cover everything. <laughs> you just, that was a horrible answer. Sorry, Chase. Um, are they married to him? No. Probably, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I probably would say the only two players they are actually, I'm going to give you three because I think John Marino is one because like, in what world would you move him on that contract? You know, that's just insanity. Uh, they got such a bargain on it and I know he's had a rough year. You know, he's also been asked to play on the opposite side of the ice. We probably had to take that into consideration when we're evaluating his game. Um, I don't. I'm not concerned in any form or fashion about John Marino. In fact, after hiccup aside, last night in the first period, he was quite frankly, I think, dominant throughout periods of the game. Um, so you've got that one. You've got. I mean, Crosby and Malkin are. You know, I think they have blank checks to remain here as long as they want, and that's fine with me because they're both players that even at like a degraded level still provide a lot of value. Um, I don't know that it's true with the tank. Now here's what's interesting, right? Because like we have to get into and like, first of all, let's say this, when it comes to crystal tang, there's approximately zero. And I mean, zero nuance to any of the discussion, right? He is either the worst thing of all time needs to be traded immediately. And the single greatest cause of every problem Pittsburgh has, or this untouchable defensive masterpiece that has never made a mistake ever. And in attempting to be fair and evaluating him, I take it from both sides, right? Um, everyone hates me. I think the reality is he hasn't been great this year, period, point blank. Uh, if you go and look, I, I personally, guys, have really, this is like, as I get older, I've started to really rely on games, game score, uh, excuse me, uh, to tell a story about either a player performance in a short period of time or over a long period of time right because game score amalgamates all of the data that uh, you, you have whether it's advanced or just goals assists doesn't have to be fancy right 
uh, and it amalgamates that into this very digestible number that tries to like account for player performance, right? So spitting that out long term, Chris Letang has basically the ninth most impactful game score on the Penguins this year. So top ten is good, but like we're talking about like Casperi Kapanen, Teddy Bluger, Jared McCann, Brandon Tanev, Pierre Olivier Joseph as all players who are outperforming him. Okay, like now the question is: Are you recouping your your investment that you've made via his contract? Like in this window, no. But this window is also like not long enough for me to just sit down and say like, well, he's completely cooked. Like I think that's just is equally as ridiculous of a thing to say. Uh, I don't think he's playing well. Uh, I think that he has a tendency to make mistakes that everybody remembers in the car ride home. Um, while they don't remember the passes that he can make on breakouts and the things that he can do, um, you know, in the offensive zone and the actual tangible benefit that he provides to your team trying to generate scoring chances. Um, that being said, you know, it's got to be a little bit cleaner. And if it doesn't get cleaner, uh, I think the expendability aspect just continues to increase at the end of the day, Chase. Yeah, the, the Latang thing is interesting too, right? Because it, it feels like so many players around the league you can use that uh, same kind of logic for, right? Where it's like he does a lot of really smart small things, but he'll make one really obvious mistake. And it's like, I, I feel like people struggle to, to weigh that at sometimes. Yeah, it's like the curse of the gifted puck moving defenseman where it's like, if you have defensive flaws, everybody remembers them, but then when he makes the beautiful breakout pass that very few other players could make to Gensel and then Crosby ends up scoring. It's like Gensel and Crosby get the credit because they scored the goal and you just completely forget about that, that he added to. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also the curse of big minutes, you know, um, you look around the league and, uh, you know, people, I think the, uh, for I'm going to go on a diatribe here and I apologize about this in advance, but like giveaways and takeaways are dumb. They're dumb stats. They're stupid. They're not even tracked the same way from arena to arena. So like it's like comparing a bunch of tests that a bunch of kids took that were all like we're comparing the scores, but they're all different tests. Like what's the purpose of comparing an algebra test to an English test to like a social studies test? This is pointless. It's pointless exercise. So I hate it. But like the other reason I hate it is because you have like giveaways and, and things like that are directly correlated to players that carry the puck a lot and play big minutes. Like people that reference these stats don't break them down as a rate. <laughs> like they don't take it by ice time. They just look at these raw numbers and and go look at these glaring errors. Well, yeah, like you know, if I had a pairing of Chris Letang and Jack Johnson, you know, Chris Letang would probably have higher giveaway numbers because he's going to have the puck a lot more. So your, your argument suddenly becomes, well, Jack Johnson's taking care of the puck more. No, he just doesn't have it as much. You know, there's like, to me, that's that's where video is so, that's why I use it so much, you know, especially when it comes now, like we're in this age where micro data is so, so common, you know, Corey, you know, Schneider and the, the, the job that he does to track his own entries and, and zone exits and, you know, and Chris, um, um, uh, DJ Bodega Cat uh, and all the work that he does. It's it's becoming more popular and now we can really quantify it and marry it to video and 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 really start to bring some of this stuff, I guess if we want to call it nuance to the forefront. You know, um 
like when I wrote about hockey strategy in 2009, it was on it, easily routinely the least popular thing um, that I ever wrote. You know, people just didn't care. So I think moving forward, you know, it's, you know, we we're coming into a place where like accessibility has opened this stuff up and people are starting to get really interested in it. And I think that's awesome. I mean, I think it grows the game. It, it makes us all better watchers of hockey. And, um, you know, some of that micro data really starts to tell, tell the story that paints some of these defensemen that generally have like quiet jobs, um, uh, you know, into the limelight. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you look year after year and the leaders and turnovers are usually guys who you consider very, very good defensemen, right? And um, it's kind of the same thing where it's like, if you just cite the guy has six turnovers, it's like, it doesn't say that he also, those six turnovers came in moving the puck up a hundred times versus someone who has three turnovers, but it came in 20 times, right? Or, or whatever. So that, that's definitely a bigger issue. And I definitely, the one thing I've never understood with turnovers is how they're tracked because you can have literal video of someone stripping another guy of the puck or turning the puck over. And it just, it won't get credited with a takeaway or a turnover. It's like, this is the stats that we're putting a, a ton of reliance into for whatever reason. Right. So. Uh, yeah. It's subjective. Right. I mean, into that, to that sense, you know, you basically have someone, you know, independently looking at the situation and analyzing, you know, whether or not it, it, it's a box that's checked uh, given the circumstance, but I would also argue that, you know, that's kind of why I've, you know, and I, and I say this to people all the time, you know, I've shifted to using expected goals over looking at scoring chances because what, like, where are we, you know, arenas are kind of doing the same thing with scoring chances, right? Like what the definition of the word, you know, inherently lends to the sort of debate as to whether or not a circumstance is one. Uh, but when you, you look at it from an expected goals perspective, you know, you kind of remove that bias and it just gives you this little raw number in terms of, you know, the predictability of it becoming a goal. It cuts that fluff and that noise out. Yeah. Those, those things tend to balance out over an entire season too, right? Like I, I know the biggest knock on expected goals is like, well, you can get unlucky or whatever. It's like, yeah, sure. But at the same time, who cares? Right. Like it, it, over the course of a full season, if you're using the stat, right, it doesn't matter. Uh, Chase, was there anything else you want to touch on? Uh, not really. I agree with the general points pretty much like, uh, yeah, I think you're way better off using expected goals as opposed to scoring chances. Just like, if you think about it intuitively, even if you have a definition of a scoring chance, which is a really tough thing to define, like you look at like home plate shots that show up at the world juniors all the time. Say that's your scoring chances. Like, well, if a shot's one foot inside versus one foot outside, like, is that really that much less dangerous of a shot? And like, that has a huge impact on your scoring chance for percentage in like a 10 game sample or whatever. Sure. And I, I, you know, one thing I think we're really bad at, we like a community that like those of us that talk about analytics, like we, we have a tendency, I think, to approach people that aren't familiar with it without giving them the foundational understanding of why what we're saying is important. And, and it's bringing this up. Like I had like this arc, not an argument, but like this conversation with somebody about this this week where they were saying, you know, well, you know, look at these penguins islanders games you know they're racking up all these scoring chances they're controlling the game and it's not you know they're not winning right so like how important is this data well hold on a minute right like you're making the point right the least predictable thing in hockey is goals goals don't beget goals 
and the teams that score them don't have a tendency. Like it's this is not it's not reliable. And and I always use it to say like, look, you know, everybody likes sports betting these days. So you bet NHL games with goals. I'll bet NHL games with expected goals, and I'll take all your money. I'll clean I'll clean you up. Like I tell people that all the time. And when you start to talk about the predictability aspect, uh, and you start to talk about like, look. Goal like generational talents like Alex Ovechkin will always score goals, right? That's they're, they're generational talents. But at a team level, we can all acknowledge in hockey that players get cold. There's an ebb and flow to the game, right? Like Mike Lang, you know, growing up, he always used to say, "X player hasn't scored since the eighth grade picnic." Like that was his, you know, that was his <laughs> euphemism for somebody's on a dry spell. So we know these things happen, right? Like we know goalies get hot. We know goalies get cold, but what we don't do is like tie it together to say like, wow, like, right. Goals are completely unpredictable. Wow. You know, like that, that is true. And maybe we should start to take this peripheral data more seriously. You know, I think if we spent more time talking about how, you know, although goals are the ultimate point of the game, um, the methods to them are sometimes more important than, than how they actually come about themselves. You know, I think there will always sort of just be that uh, slight disconnect between both sides of the quote-unquote argument. And it's a weird yeah. thing, too, because, like, if you walk into an arena and you see the shots are 10 to 1 but you're for your team, but they're down one nothing. Like, no one just assumes your team's getting grossly outplayed. But then when you take the next step of that statement, which is that Corsi and expected goals are very meaningful beyond – actual goals like that all of a sudden becomes super controversial <laughs> it really is and and i think you know some of it too is is when you start and, and i'll give you an example right i cannot tell you how many times i've sat down with the intention of writing something where i've like i'm going to go on natural stat trick or hockey viz and i and i have this idea of what the data is going to say right like i've i've watched this game i've formulated an opinion and I go to check that opinion against the data and I'm wrong. Just and now it's like, the opposite. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like back to the drawing board, you know? It's so like, A, I think that's fun. Right. But B, I think it's fun, but a lot of people hate that. And I think a lot of people, and this is, look, like, you know, I get this is sports, right? Like this is the way it, sports work. But I think like for some people, it's like almost, you know, it takes the mystery away from it, you know? Um, or it takes away their ability to tell the story and that's cool. You know, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, but you know, you got I, I don't think if you just, if you're just blocking it out, you know, it, you, you know, you, you put your fingers in your ears and start yelling, la, 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 la. Um, you know, it's kind of tough to have a conversation around that. That's the big thing, right? If you don't, if you just want to sit there and just enjoy the game that's in front of you and not think about what, like, just cheer blindly to what's happening. I don't expect you to care about any of this stuff, but then you can't go back and say, well, no, 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 you're actually an idiot for using this stuff because the shots say that they're 10 to five. So that's why it's actually good. Right. It, you can't have one without the other, but if you want to fully ignore it, fine, fully ignore everything, but you can't have it both ways. I don't know if you guys have noticed this now. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember who the quote came from um, this week. Uh, but there was a, you know, there's always the discussion, you know, Paul Maurice leading the charge last week about the analytics piece. Right. But then uh, who is the player? This it was Brad Marchand. 
and came out and said, you know, some of this yeah. video analysis stuff is just ridiculous. It's like, wait a minute, like how <laughs> how do how are we supposed to judge the game now? Like we can't do it analytically. We can't do it with video. What what's left? You know, I think yeah, like I get it. It's reactionary, right? But at the same time, you can try and film those reactions to figure out how to react differently next time, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think uh, you know, I think sometimes it's like an accountability discussion more than it is um, an analysis discussion, where like you know, video and data have a tendency to, to you know, especially when they agree with each other, uh, have a tendency to build quite uh, the the damning mountain of evidence. So I think if you're uh, on the receiving end of that, either in the short or the long term, you know, you're probably going to be inclined to uh, more or less lash out at the community there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us, man, today. Uh, plug some stuff. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, I'm on the Twitter machine at jmarshfof and uh, on the Athletic uh, Pittsburgh. I uh, think um, uh, this week coming up, we have a celebration of uh, Teddy Bluger. So it's going to be exciting. Um, I, I, we need to we need to talk about the great things Teddy Bluger is doing. Uh, I'm sure. I, I mean, I look forward to reading. I, I love reading your work. It's seriously great stuff. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. As I said, and we'll have to have you on again down the road. Absolutely, anytime. Looking forward to it. Huge thanks to Jesse for joining us today. Uh, there's a lot of fun. I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. And if there's anyone you want to hear, let us know. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at NHL Sends and stuff, and Chase on Twitter at CMHockey66. Uh, you can read both of our work at lastwordonhockey.com, as well as my work at milehighhockey.com. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week.